0: Today an attempt to understand the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar and now also in Bangladesh and to a lesser extent Malaysia, where the survivors have fled an estimated half million desperate people, many young children and babies. Back in 2013 the UN identified the Rohingya as the most persecuted minority in the world, whom the government of Myanmar categorizes as stateless Muslims from Bangladesh I'm speaking with Lionel Bopage former General Secretary of the JVP in Sri Lanka and now in Australia working as a community activist Lionel you've compared the situation which exists in Myanmar and has existed for many years to the situation of the Tamil people in Sri Lanka since independence from Britain. How significant are the parallels in the two countries, Sri Lanka and Myanmar, in terms of the British rule and its consequences?
1: There are several factors that we need to consider. One aspect is, of course, the uh, British colonialism, you know, what they did in those countries and uh, how the populations in those countries have been affected by their policies. There are a couple of other aspects as well. Probably the second aspect would be, for example, how the local bourgeoisie or the emerging capitalist class in those countries have made use of that situation. So there are these uh, external factors and internal factors, as well as the situation is complicated by the residues of feudalism or uh, what we call asiatic mode of production in asia in sri lanka of course you know free trade was introduced in 1977 a long long time back in uh, myanmar or burma still it is being introduced in the sense say under UNU's regime and uh, nevin's regime military government and then the military dictatorships that followed they have kept the economy closed they didn't open up their economy. Now they are opening up their economy. In Sri Lanka, what uh, happened is with the opening up of the economy in 1977, the neoliberal economy needed foreign investment to come from overseas, but then there were conditions that the local labor had to be subservient or obedient. To whatever the conditions, so they couldn't they couldn't oppose any of the conditions imposed by the the uh, neoliberal companies or multinational corporations. In Sri Lanka, when they opened up, or rather when they colonized the country, obviously they needed labor, they needed land, and they needed administrative uh, resources. They acquired labor by importing Indian. Uh, what I call Malaya workers in plantation workers, so Indian-Tamil uh, workers from Tamil Nadu and so on, uh, because uh, the local population in Sri Lanka, especially the Sinhalese, they were not willing to work for the British colonial rule uh, to develop a plantation economy. They didn't want to become uh, hired labor. On the other hand, they acquired land by what they call Land uh, Ordinance Act. And it is uh, comparable to the terra nullius law that was implemented in Australia. So they acquired all the land in Sri Lanka through that. And then, for administrative purposes, they used pro-colonial, who were willing to accept British moves and traditions. They educated them in their missionary schools and used them in... So that was the way in Sri Lanka that was approached. In Myanmar, The situation is that there are pristine land and pristine resources that could be exploited. And they are being opening up, these lands and resources. Especially if you consider the situation in Myanmar, it is different to what existed in in Sri Lanka. Because when we talk about Sri Lanka, we are talking about the anti-colonial wave in india in other countries in the region whereas in myanmar it is surrounded by two major countries china and india of course it is surrounded by other countries you know thailand and so on They, they 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 don't have much of an impact on myanmar i mean compared to the economic strength and the military strength of china and india if we look at what is happening now, this is also—it's a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, I—I I, I can't limit it to Sri Lanka and Myanmar. It's a massive worldwide corporate acquisitions program. They are acquiring land for mining, agricultural purposes, water, and so on. In Myanmar, what has happened is military has been grabbing massive stretches of land from smallholders. The first people that were subjected to this usurpation of land happened in the 1990s with Buddhists. Because Buddhists and Muslims, when we talk about Rohingyas or Rakhine Muslims or Rakhine Buddhists, they are small holders of land. When big corporate companies, they need land, these small holders need to be squeezed out. How do they do that? This land grabbing exercise in Myanmar has been going on for decades now. It has intensified during the last few years and that is what has given rise to the Rohingya crisis. Although we talk about, you know, we can compare the, the ethnic issues or ethno-religious issues in Sri Lanka to the ethno-religious issues in Myanmar. That is more or less concentrating on the aspects of strategy and tactics used in implementing the economic policy of neoliberalism or colonialism during those days. So, From my point of view, it could be seen as an exercise for resource extraction and land acquisition in Myanmar. In 1977, when in, in Sri Lanka, when situation, um, I mean, when when they opened up the economy, the Tamil population in Sri Lanka was specially affected, because they were mainly involved in agricultural production in chili, rice, onions, and so on. With the opening up of the economy, Indian commodities, agricultural commodities, started to flowing in, which created problems for the agricultural producers in the north and east of Sri Lanka. So there was an economic aspect. But then, at the same time, I think the regime in Sri Lanka, in order to make room for their economic manuals, they used the racial and ethnic card. On the one hand, that could be used to divide people. On the other hand, people's attention could be diverted away from economic issues. I think uh, that is what is happening in Myanmar now. In Myanmar, the recent uh, Rohingya attacks, it has been, I think, from 1990s onwards until 2012, uh, there have been no ethnic issues as such, major conflict in Myanmar. It started in 2012 when the regime launched attacks against Rohingyas. The main purpose of the attack was to expel them. We have to put this in context, economic context as well. Since 2012, according to some reports, the land allocated to large projects in Myanmar had increased by 170%, especially between 2010 and 2013. For large corporate acquisitions, land laws have been changed, especially if we we compare the situation in Myanmar and Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka, there was a civilian administration which used military more often to repress Tamil population as well as singular population for the economic interests of the ruling elite. In Myanmar, After Nevin, it was a military dictatorship until Aung San Suu Kyi recently was elected as the state councillor, equivalent to prime minister's position in Myanmar in in the elections that was held. Military is involved in this whole corporate acquisition program, so there are military economic interests as well. In Sri Lanka, if we look at the period especially during President Mahindraja Park's time, military was involved in many commercial economic enterprises in the north and east. They started uh, those sort of business programs. They ran farms, hotels. They ran, you know, sort of, so. still they are running. So there were military economic interests, but they, those, those interests came in at the latter stages, maybe after the year 2000. Now, in Myanmar, the eco- military economic interest started with Nevin's military dictatorship, and it has been continuing and accelerating with the subsequent military dictatorships. For example, quite recently, the government allocated, according to reports, hectares in the Rohingya area of Myanmar for corporate rural development. And uh, when we compare it with uh, 2012, it was only 7,000 hectares. So there has been an acceleration in acquisition of land for corporate grabbing. Now, what has happened is because of the focus international focus on religious ethnic aspects of the conflict most of the people are not aware of what is happening in the economic front so i think uh, in sri lanka and in myanmar the situation can be compared they are different but in myanmar the situation is much more worse than in sri lanka
0: can i take you back a few decades We're talking about the Rohingya at the moment. I can remember the Burmese military raiding, killing, raping the ethnic minorities along the border areas with Thailand. There was the Karen, the Kareni, and I can't remember the names of the others. Where does that fit into the pattern that you're talking about?
1: I think it's the same situation because, uh, say, when Nevin captured power, in uh, Myanmar. Before that, actually, there were issues in, I think, uh, Kachin state, and uh, there were Shan militant force. There were other other problems in other areas, like Chin state and so on. Among, there are more than 130 or so ethnic groups in Sri Lanka, in, in, in Myanmar. The main interest of the military, a couple of factors interconnected. One is the economic interest. You know, they wanted to acquire land. They wanted to get land freed from all these people. But at the same time, there were this uh, aspect that was uh, remaining from the colonial days. During colonial days, especially under Unu, that's uh, immediately after the independence, he made Buddhism the state religion of Myanmar. And then when Nevin came, He got rid of that status, actually, in that respect, you know, the military dictatorship of Nevin changed that. But then, still, the influence of religion was very strong. Actually, Nevin, although he changed the status of Buddhism as a state in the Constitution, but they made use of the Buddhism to divert the attention away from the economic issues. There were, for example, during Nevin's Nevin's regime, there were economic issues, so there was an economic crisis that was, I think, in the 1990s. It was at that time they started repressing some of the ethnic groups in a mass scale. Basically, the military was taking over land from Buddhist smallholders and uh, Muslim smallholders, Uh, Rakhine, and other groups in the 1990s. Now, what the military government did in 2012, they changed the law. In March 2012, they introduced the farmland law and the vacant land law. As a whole, it was tantamount to a new foreign investment law. It allowed 100% foreign capital and lease periods of up to 70 years. At the same time, they annulled the previous law that was called 1963 Peasant Law. That law protected smallholders and also protected the tillers' rights to the land. Well, that came into being during the era, that's called a socialist era those days. But, you know, everything has changed now. Against this background, the escalating displacement of millions of Buddhist and Muslim smallholders from the land, obviously they have to become refugees of the new economic order. And as I said before, Myanmar is not unique. There have been brutal expulsions of smallholders that train other countries, say for example in Sri Lanka, when they started sugar plantations, they had to get rid of so many small farmers so that they can get the land released and hand it over to multinational corporations. And even today, the government is offering huge tracts of land to multinational corporations as the economic policy of the new government.
0: You're listening to Tuesday Hometime on Melbourne radio station 3CR. This is a conversation with Lionel Bopage, the former Secretary-General of the JVP in Sri Lanka looking at the situation of the Rohingya in Myanmar. You say there are over 130 ethnic groups in Myanmar. Yes. Why are the Rohingya not citizens?
1: Rohingyas have been an ethnic group, but they they were not recognised by the government as citizens of the state.
0: And when did that happen?
1: Rohingyas have been in Myanmar for a very, very long time. What happened is, before the elections, actually, if, if we compare the situation, before the elections uh, in which UNU came to power, that is, uh, immediately before uh, Aung San was assassinated, there were Rohingya representatives in the state assembly or the parliament. During UNU's elections, some of the Rohingyas were elected. And then, even under, uh, I think when uh, Aung San was contested the elections and then she had a massive uh, win in the elections but she was not given the authority to take over power and she was kept under house arrest. During that elections also there were at least four, as far as I can remember, uh, Rohingya representatives elected. But the problem was under Navin's regime, they enacted a citizenship act called myanmar nationality act 1982 and in 1982 rohingyas were stripped of their citizenship and it applied retrospectively so they became stateless this particular act did not allow recognizing rohingyas myanmar has eight national races men and uh, 135 ethnic groups rohingyas were never recognized as one of those under the act, there were three levels of citizenship it established the most basic level of citizenship as co- that was called naturalized citizenship and for that the applicants needed to prove that their families lived in Myanmar prior to 1948 and also they were fluent in one of the national languages but the Rohingya's issue was they didn't have any paperwork to show that one because Either it was not available to them or they were denied. To become a citizen of Myanmar, a particular person's ancestors should have belonged to one of the racial or ethnic groups in Myanmar prior to the British rule in 1823. Afterwards, Rohingyas were declared Bengali foreigners. You can, you can see they are dating back from the, to the 12th century, but they were refused. And then they had been massively discriminated against in terms of the studies, in terms of work, in terms of travel, marriage, practice in religion, access to health care. In those aspects, as well as political representation, they were not allowed to organize politically or to contest elections, of course, because they are stateless. Even if one or two people who are able to manage through all the barriers get to at least the basic citizenship, they were prevented from contesting elections through repressive measures. Sometimes uh, they were arrested and kept in custody until elections were over. That was the situation. The other factor is I think most of the Myanmar population is uh, not sufficiently literate. Uh, the literacy rate of Rohingyas is 20%
0: how have they survived all those years with such persecution
1: you know it is not only rohingya i think that most of the people especially the geographic situation in myanmar because it is mostly pristine forests and so on access to most of those areas are very difficult and most ethnic groups are concentrated in those areas, for example, current people, then um, the Mons, uh, you know, sort of, well, some of them must be living in the cities, um, uh, like Rangoon, Yongong. But most of those people are living in extremely rural areas. So I think one of the problems is that people will suffer without getting noticed by the outside world. And I think that is what happened in Myanmar, because it was a closed society and it was completely isolated, especially after Nevin's regime. During U time, during actually even even prior to that, when Aung San established the Communist Party, there were other groups. Like there was a Socialist Party. Even within the Communist movement, there were factions like Red Flag Communist, White Flag Communist, pro. Chinese, fundamentally, sort of Maoists. And so there were all these groups. During that time, there was recognition of Rohingyas and other ethnic groups. I think it was during the independence negotiations of Aung San with the British Prime Minister at the time, Mount Atlee. During that time, there was some sort of discussion, negotiations, where the communist leaders came together with the leaders of many ethnic groups and decided to form the Union of Burma. That Union of Burma was more or less a federal structure. That gave rise to some of the tensions within the military because there were other sensitivities as well. For example, Aung San, when they wanted to fight against the British, initially Aung San was trained by the Japanese in Yunnan. So there were Japanese-British issues that are coming into the equation. When the civil leaders, like the Communist Party leaders, and after the independence, still continuing the tradition of the previous groups, they were recognizing Rohingyas, and they were more or less trying to build harmony through inclusion of these but then some of them, the, the military interests, didn't like that. So that is where the ethnic and religious aspects come into the equation. The One of the issues that was used to throw UNU out of power through military dictatorship, it was this devolution of power or federalism that UNU's government and the previous socialist leaders were accepting. And recognizing, Now Nevin's regime didn't accept that. I think under UNU's, the last uh, general election UNU faced, he made a pledge to create a special administrative zone where Rakhine Muslims, including Rohingyas, so they could be resident in that particular zone. When Nevin captured power, gradually he abolished that. The, that particular zone was made ineffective economically and legally.
0: Can I take you through to 2017? Yes. We now have Aung San's daughter, Suu Kyi. Yes, Suu Kyi yes. What responsibility does she have for the situation at the present time?
1: I think there are two aspects. One is Aung San Suu Kyi is the state councillor, like prime minister. But under the changes to the constitution that was made before Aung San Suu Kyi came to power, military dictatorship changed the constitution, that constitution needs 25% of the military to be represented in the parliament. And one of the vice presidents has to be from the military. And so there are other conditions that are imposed. And Aung San Suu Kyi accepted that situation, she became the state council. So, in a way, Aung San Suu Kyi is trapped because she can't go against the military in the open. That is one of the issues. Second thing is, she wants to capture power through parliamentary election. Because of the sensitivities of the Rohingya issue and also uh, the issues relating to other ethnic groups, my thinking is that Aung San Suu Kyi is in an opportunistic manner keeping all those issues under the carpet so that the sensitivities of the majority Buddhists will not be affected. This is purely looking from a parliamentary point of view. The second thing is if Aung San Suu Kyi advocates recognition of the rights of other ethnic Groups, including Rohingyas, then in the elections that uh, could affect that is one thing. But the second thing is, military might go back and enforce dictatorial measures again. It may, it could be done overtly or it could be done covertly. We don't know. But there is that danger as well from the military. But then it is not an excuse for Aung San Suu Kyi for not standing for the democratic rights of those people. If we come from a a, a socialist point of view, we could explain what is happening in terms of uh, the economic interests, the intervention of neoliberal groups and uh, the land grabbing exercises and so on. But then Aung Sanji, Suu Kyi is not such a radical I haven't seen anything, um, you know, in her writings or speeches uh, looking into those aspects or going into those sort of analysis. So, on the one hand, we can understand the situation of Aung San Suu Kyi because she has got entrapped in this situation. She uh, can't take this side or that side. But from a social justice point of view, I think what she is doing is Incorrect. She has to, at least in a diplomatic way, come out and say that Myanmar government needs to recognise the human and democratic rights of all the people in Myanmar.
0: Just finally, Lionel, there are up to one million people now living in desperate situation in yes. Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries in the world. They say the people have to go back, hmm. how can they go back?
1: It is, it is a pretty, pretty uh, complicated situation because on the one hand Bangladesh wants to send these people back because Bangladesh on the one hand Bangladesh is concerned about two things. One is uh, Bangladesh's own economic situation which is not good. And uh, keeping close to, uh, I would say, more than 500,000 Rohingyas in camps in uh, Bangladesh is not an easy thing. And also, there is not much of foreign assistance they receive uh, for keeping them in, in Bangladesh. The second thing is the complication with Islamic fundamentalist groups. There has been some sort of concern of Islamic fundamentalist groups, international groups, getting involved with Rohingyas in camps and also links to Pakistani intelligence service. So those sort of concerns forces the Bangladeshi government to send these people back. But on the other hand, Myanmar government, including Aung San Suu Kyi, they are saying they have to go through this particular vetting process. But the problem is, in this particular case, Rohingyas need to prove that they are residents of Myanmar. How can they prove, because they don't have any document. They haven't worked out a solution to this. The other aspect I would like to emphasize is that this is not the first time Rohingyas have been expelled from... Myanmar, they had to flee Myanmar, They, I think in different numbers, from maybe 100,000, I think in 2012, and some of them were sent back. And what happens is, when they go back, just before they settle down, they create another incident, and then people will have to go back to Bangladesh. You can observe a pattern where people go back, and they don't go back to their original land, they are, they are asked to stay some in some other places, and then again they are expelled. They had to flee. One of the issues would be if Myanmar regime's interests with regard to corporatization or their links with corporate interests wants the land where Rohingyas originally lived to be used for... Neoliberal purposes, then Rohingyas can't go back to those places. So they have to be moved into new places. Where are they going to settle down? Will Rohingyas uh, accept that? Another aspect would be the identity issues, because Rohingyas want them to be identified as Rohingyas, whereas the Myanmar government doesn't want to recognize them as Myanmar. I know there have been some sort of negotiations where instead of rohingyas whether they could be identified with a different name uh, whether myanmar government could accommodate them still there is no resolution to that so it is a very complicated issue most probably uh, rohingya people will have to stay in bangladesh in uh, displacement camps for a long time to come
0: You've been listening to Lionel Bopage, the former Secretary-General of the JVP Party in Sri Lanka, talking about the similarities between the situation of the Tamils in Sri Lanka and the Rohingya in Myanmar. That's all I have for today. Hopefully I'll be having Bruce on the program next week. I did try to reach him by Skype, Late yesterday afternoon, but it didn't quite happen. But hopefully, it will happen next week because he's on that walk for Palestine, which um, has taken people right from London, right through Europe to Palestine, and they're there. They're going to be there and mark the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration signing on. I think it's Thursday. That's right. I think it's Thursday, the 2nd. Well, that's all for me for today. I'll be back next week at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned for Done By Law. and, um, And that's it for me. Bye for now.